Hi, everyone. Welcome to Office Hours. If you're watching on YouTube, you can find out more about what we do at officehours.global. Our first hour is general discussion about digital media, and our second hour is usually something we're going to spend a little bit more time on, but today we're going to do more Q&A. <laughs> so we had uh, Cheryl Audenritter uh, from Odd House um, had uh, some technical issues, and so we're going to we're not going to have her on, but we'll reschedule her. But we have an incredible uh, audio crew here. So if you've got audio questions, you can general questions are fine too. But if you've got audio questions, this is really a great panel for that, uh, as all Wednesdays are. So definitely come on Wednesday with your audio questions. Um, let's go ahead and jump into those questions. Bill, what do we got? First one comes from Andy Kokendorfer in Vieira, Florida. And Andy says, what best practices do you send Zoom participants to promote voice intelligibility and quality? Go ahead, Jeff. So I'm going to start with something that is not audio related, but will definitely affect voice. And that is wired Ethernet. Need to have wired. If you're on Wi-Fi, you're going to get micro stalls and that will chop up the voice, which is the voice is sent uh, with as little latency as possible. So it will suffer from Wi-Fi problems. So plug in your Ethernet. Go to Javier. And the next step would be to plug headphones and the microphone, even if it's like the one that comes with your iPhone, but having a separate speaker and microphone is a must for intelligibility. And that will, will help a lot. And I think good practices like uh, raising your hand or not talking over, over uh, other people is also good, like good things to do that are not like technical, but can help a lot. Good, Bill. And the last one that I'd recommend is just make sure that your microphone is close to your mouth. We have too many people who are coming in from uh, laptop distance away, and the laptops are pretty good now at doing some beamforming kind of tricks to do that, but it's never the same intelligibility as getting a microphone capsule close to your mouth so that the inverse square principle helps you get more signal-to-noise ratio. And Jeff? And uh, it's one of my pet peeves, but I try and point out to pay attention to the room that they're in. You know, invariably, the person you want to hear is doing this from their marble palace. And, you know, it sounds like they're in a bathroom. So trying to give them some tips, depending on if they're in the office or or at home, where they can maybe set up to do a little bit better to, to take that big, you know, theater echo out. Next question. Next question comes to us from Lou Perez in Queen Creek, Arizona. Can Courtney show how he uses neoprene foam to quiet the springs on his mic arm? Go ahead, Courtney. Um, yes, I, it's a little hard for me to show you on the one that I have, but this is a, a piece of the neoprene foam. I'll show you where I get that in a minute. And this is the arm, the cheap arm, the $20 arm you can get from Amazon. And what I do is I take the strip of foam and I wedge it right in here, uh, where the spring meets the arm on the upper piece with the uh, adhesive on the upper piece and the uh, bottom of the foam. It's got adhesive on one side, so it's like this. And the bottom of the foam presses against the springs. And I put that on both of the springs because without it, you hear this low-frequency ringing uh, that can happen uh, whenever you bump the table. The type of foam that I'm using is this uh, weather stripping. It's... I found it on Amazon called Yol Shy Window Air Conditioner Foam Tape. Two pieces, one inch wide. And it's um, it says it's PVC. I believe it's neoprene because it really feels like neoprene. Uh, but it could be a PVC. It does not make any noise when it moves, and it's uh, quite compliant. Next question. Danny Law from Malaysia is here. Logic Pro will now run on iPads. Excited? Jeffrey? 
So yeah, I actually am. Uh, so a lot of times when I when I create a song, I I'll be on a plane or something like that. Uh, so I would always pull up GarageBand and uh, hook up my headphones and, and start the song, and then bring it over to the computer to do to finish. With Logic Pro, I'd probably do the exact same thing. I, I wouldn't like to uh, until I know the, if the app can actually do it. Uh, I wouldn't want to switch from the desktop back to the app. Uh, mostly because there might be a plugin I use, or might be something else that I that the desktop does that the iPad doesn't do uh, that could cause problems if I'm listening on the iPad and I make a tweak and I put it back on desktop. It could be all over the place. So it's a great. I, I think it's great for starting a song, or if you're going to complete the song on the device, it's going to be perfect for that. Uh, and then switch over to the desktop if if you need to. Go ahead, Javier. I am excited as well, except I'm probably going to get a new iPad to, to handle everything I throw at it. Um, of course, as adding what Jeffrey was saying, those tools, the creativity tools, sometimes depend more on having it that when you are creative or you want it to be creative. So having it uh, like with your iPad, I think that that's, that's awesome. And it's going to uh, like jumping from the iPad version to the desktop version is going to be very interesting to see what they do with the continuity and all of that parts because Apple has done some great things when you can start something in your iPad and then move like seamlessly to the desktop too. So jumping from one another is going to be something very interesting. And uh, go ahead, Jeff. So uh, one of the big drawbacks of Logic is just that it's Mac only. So it it's not something that shares. And I know that, you know, now running to iPad, it's still not Windows, but it does open it up to a huge community of people who don't have a Mac. Um, it's going to it's gonna sell a lot of iPads um, because it doesn't run on on bare bones iPads, and you're gonna need a lot of storage on the iPad when you start putting all the loops that come with Logic and those kind of things in there. But uh, I'm excited about it. I think it's great progress. Good, Bill. Yeah, I agree with Jeff, and it should drive a lot of USB-C enabled storage on the outside for these big libraries. I'm also really excited because the code for audio that exists in Logic is, is they just duplicated that for Final Cut. So we're going to get some of those advantages. And I'm, I do a lot of voiceover work in Final Cut's voiceover module. So I'm hoping that this iPad, uh, the pro apps coming to iPad make for a very mobile and very high quality recording system that I can use every day. I'm really excited about that. Go ahead, Courtney. I didn't see the in, the uh, demo, but maybe somebody here who has seen it can tell me. Did they overhaul the interface? Does it require a mouse? Is that why it's iPad only and not iPhone? And um, so, because I thought, you know, with a touch interface, it's going to be fairly hard to, you know, indicate where you want to cut and so on. Um, and same thing with Final Cut Pro. It would seem to require some type of finder-based pointer than your finger. It did look like they they re revamped it so that it's touch based, but you of course you can. They've been adding the mouse and keyboard to the iPad workflow for a couple of years now, so I think it's a little bit of both. Go ahead, Bill. Yeah, this doesn't ship until I think the twenty third, so we're all speculating about it. But a couple of the screenshots I've seen showed that they changed the interface a little. I saw some sort of little uh, half wheel for determining levels and things like that, and it is also supposed to be coded very heavily to work with the Apple Pencil too. So I would think that for precision adjustments and things like that, they're going to allow pencil control for a lot of drawing waveforms and things like that. 
I think it's going to be really hard to go back to the desktop when we can touch. I think when they start adding all the pencil things that can be done, it'll be really interesting to see what happens with with a lot of these um, a lot of these apps. It, it's going to be a fascinating process. Remember that with the USB C already, you can take a larger interface and ha- have it have that theoretically pulling 16 channels of audio or more uh, into the iPad directly through the USB-C. So it really could be a very small recording studio for a podcast or even a small band um, and and pull those all into individual tracks live and then trim them and upload them or whatever you wanted to do with them. So it's going to be really interesting to see you know how far they allow that to go. Uh, I'm really excited about it. I, th- I think it's going to be a lot of fun. I'm glad. I'm glad I stuck with Logic. <laughs> so so it, 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 I don't have to move anywhere. That's uh, what I've been using for quite some time now. Next question. Eric Price in Kansas City says, on two different Windows machines today, I set up my MixPre 6 only to find that after restart, neither sees the MixPre as an audio device. It does see it as a USB device, but not as an audio interface or playback device. Any thoughts? You know, I, I have... Uh, we've just had this problem on a Mac of all things, and so we we had to restart the computer to have it see the mix pre as a as a valid audio input. So it wasn't after restart that we had this problem; it was before restart. Go ahead, Jeffrey. So uh, I would first of all make sure that you have a good audio cable, uh, USB cable on there. And Mickey in the chat has suggested make sure that you have the ASIO drivers, the ASIO drivers installed for the mix pre. Next question. Next one comes to us from Dave Troutman in Edmonton, Canada. For those who began an audio using VU meters with dancing needles, how difficult was the transition to peak meters and luffs, or was it easy? Good, Javier. For me, it was like uh, uh, getting each tool to understanding each tool for what it's doing. So, like VU meters are uh, they they uh, tend to uh, they show you the average level, so you're not like targeting like a hard like minus 18, minus 20, or one, two, you know, like you have to stay between zero and some, it tells you about like the health of your, uh, of how is your, your audio is coming in. So as for, for music, I still use a lot of view meters, even like analog view meters or like digital um, representations of view meters. And for me, peak meters are more like a, you, you you want to know where it's hitting. So you don't, you don't go over a certain level. It's not a, like an average thing. And the loves is more like a mastering uh, for me. Like, you know, what's like your final level. So like everyone hears at the same level. So like different tool for me. Good, Marty. You know, if you're if you're used to driving a large pickup truck, and then you get into a high performance sports car, the difference in dynamics and responsiveness is totally different. So, the switch from analog to digital was kind of like, you know very similar adjustment. Uh, analog is very forgiving. You can you can overmodulate it without actually um, producing any audible distortion, uh, but digital is not the same way. So the LUF system gives us a lot more information uh, to go by about what, <clears throat> about the peak energy of the of the uh, signal, the average energy uh, in, in various grades. So it's, as Javier said, um, understanding what it is, would, would, what it's showing you, the information it's showing you is the key to actually using it well. But yes, it uh, it is an adjustment, but uh, it's a good adjustment to make. Yeah, uh, go ahead, Courtney. 
Yeah, I had a uh, little trouble because growing up, <laughs> growing up when I was a boy, uh, coming up through the uh, production sound uh, um, uh, in in film, uh, we were used to the Nagra, which had a modulometer, and this is what it was. And uh, you know, the tone was set at minus eight dB. It wasn't really a VU meter; it was a modulometer. It was your percentage of modula modulation in dB. And so it's kind of like a Luff's meter, but um, slower in response. Uh, so we had to get used to a whole different set of values because uh, we would always set minus 8 dB tone at the beginning of each tape. The uh, Once we went to digital LED-based meters, uh, it was nice because then they could put a, a peak hold so that you could see the instantaneous peak and it would that LED would stay on for a length of time while the rest of it would modulate back and forth as as the sound came in, so you could see how how high it peaked without uh, having to look constantly at to try and figure out where the LEDs ended up. You know, two seconds ago, because you could see the peak, so it was a lot easier in that respect. You go ahead, Jack. So with meters, we sort of have two separate problems. One is we need to know the the absolute peak because that is something that affects distortion through our systems. And we also need to know the average level because our human hearing, we tend to judge things on their loudness based on the average level. So we want meters that average over time. And the, the VU meter uh, did the averaging simply by the physical ballistics of having to move that needle. So it took time for that needle to move. And then they added, you see, a little peak LED that gave us an indication of when things were were really uh, high peak. The other thing that we didn't get with any of these meters, um, with even when we went to the digital version, so PPMs uh, used the bar to show you average level, and that would move slower, generally around 300 milliseconds. And then you had a peak that was more instantaneous. And as Courtney said, you had a peak hold there. Um, what LUFs give you is is now uh, VUs and PPM meters are kind of, they don't care what the frequency is. But human beings, we hear different frequencies at different levels, as we talked about weeks ago with psychoacoustics. So a LUFS meter is compensated for human hearing. So things that are really sensitive for us, sort of in that 3K to 5K region, those will push the meter more than, say, something like 30 hertz, because our ears are not sensitive there. So a LUFS is closer to the holy grail of being a meter that reads like humans hear. And and beyond just the, the difference between LUFS and peak and so on and so forth, one of the other things that that really uh, makes a difference is being able to see these over time. So if you look at this uh, image here, let's see if I, if I get this here. So... Um, so what you what you see here is we've got a couple different rooms all being streamed at the same time. And what I'm able to do is over here, I can look at these. And this is a history meter. Uh, this is um, using Spectre, um, but you can get a couple other ones that do this. And so I have a couple things that I'm looking at for each one of these. I have a leisure zoom meter that tells me that whether I'm in, if, if the polarity goes out <laughs> with, with what's going on, it'll, this will turn sideways. And then I know I'm in trouble. Um, and then I have a spectrogram and spectrograph. Um, and so this this is basically, this is looking down on this breakup. And what I can see is little lines. If I've got a line buzz or something like that, I can look at it and just see that that's actually happening. Um, this one was just key though. This is a, hist a levels history meter. And you can see when this is all green, when I see a lot of green here, that means that my levels are right. I can tell that this one's probably just a little bit low, you know, on that. And so, I, but I don't have to listen to all of the, 
rooms to know that I can just look over at the meters. Um, once you get used to that kind of view of things, it's really hard to go back to something that's analog. <laughs> you, know, like, like you have so much data. Um, and I, when I'm doing a stream, I always have some version of those kinds of meters up. Um, a lot of times we do a lot of stuff in 5.1. And, um, and so a lot of times we want to see all those, all those levels across all those channels. And so it's, it's pretty important. Uh, next question. Fred Eric Eckert in Bad Herrenalm, Germany says, Unfortunately, the Sony FX30 has no remote shading option as the Blackmagic cameras do via the ATEM. Could the color box from AJA be a solution? Yeah, the color box is a really, it looks like a really great product. I haven't gotten to use it yet. Um, I'm actually going to see if I can get one to test, uh, you know, soon with my FX30. Um, and But it looks like a great product. Uh, it's pretty expensive. Uh, it's cost as much as the camera. Um, so it, it definitely will give you a ton of control. You may find that the 12G bi-directional Blackmagic can also do some of that work. It does a LUT. So it'll, you can, I think, put a 33-point LUT into it. So if you want to do that color correction there with a LUT, you could do it with that. I think that the color box will give you more, more, a lot more tools, but at a higher price. So those are the things to think about there. Uh, next question. Andy Kokendorfer in Vieira, Florida is up next. Thoughts on the Golden Age Pre-73 Mark III as a preamp for an SM7B. Thanks. Uh, go ahead, Jeff. Haven't used the Golden Age. Uh, it is a clone of the Neve uh, 1173 preamp. So it's a single channel pre with uh, uh, instrument input and mic input, but it has 80 dB of gains. So you're in good shape there for the SM7B. Uh, and as clones, they have a pretty good reputation. Next question. Zach Jeffries, or Jeffers, excuse me, in Spokane, Washington, says looking for a small network router and access point for in-field streaming and remote Wi-Fi video streaming devices, and he's looking for iOS SRT. Locations will be in sun, sand, and weather, so it needs to be pretty robust. Recommendations. You go, Jeffrey. I like that. Another Jeff. I, I've talked about this several times. This is the GL iNet, which is a great little portable router. Uh, some of the features on this are the fact that you can actually uh, power this via uh, USB, so you can plug this into a uh, into a, a little unit or something like that, or plug it straight into the computer, and then you can uh, use the uh, the Ethernet. These are one gig Ethernet. The newer version actually is Wi-Fi six, which I highly recommend. Uh, don't get Wi-Fi 5. It just doesn't make any sense anymore. Uh, but uh, Wi-Fi 6, and the best part about this is uh, you can hook this up into a hotel, connect up to their Wi-Fi if they have like a, a login page. You can go through this, and then all of your devices will be connected to that. And then uh, the other thing is if you need more Ethernet ports, then I would highly suggest getting an unmanaged switch to or a managed switch for that matter to uh, route uh, between there. But another cool thing about this is you can actually have this plugged in to each and every single device, and then they can talk back and forth to each other. So the GLI net is where, what I recommend. Yeah, and, and the thing that we've used the most in the past have been the, the, the Peplink series. And so Peplink, uh, specifically, I think the MaxBR series are the ones that we've used. Um, this is going to give you a lot of, a lot of control over general, you know, building, routing, you know, um, lots of complex architecture um, that, that might mix in a handful of modems. Um, there's some bonding solutions that Peplink has, has as well. Um, and so, I mean, in the, when we've done streaming in the field, that has been our primary router. Um, to, to make all of those things work. Um, next question. 
Gordon Lake, Los Angeles, California, in a video production setup with 20 devices on the network, six of which use Dante, can audio be expected to flow smoothly without any special configurations? Go ahead, John. I would say that depends. Are you talking about six Dante devices, which are sending stereo audio at 48 kilohertz, or are they, you know, sending 64 channels of audio? Are your 14 other devices just, you know, computers hanging out doing very little? Are they servers? Is this NDI video running off of those? So it depends what other traffic is on your network. Uh, I would be cautious about that. Good morning. Yeah, everything that Jeff Francis just said, plus um, you really don't want to be mixing uh, regular data, computer data on the same network with Dante. Um, <clears throat> Dante is uh, very reliant on priority, and unless you configure your network to give that that bitstream, those packets priority, uh, they can they can mess you up. So. Uh, uh, it, it is best to keep Dante on its own network, and with just six devices, you could use an unmanaged switch that just connects to those Dante ports, and that will work fine. Go ahead, Nigel. Yeah, I tried doing exactly this, and I never got it to properly work. Uh, the Dante always failed. I couldn't get the controller to see the the, uh, the the machines. I bought one of the Netgear AV line, put everything on there, and I've not looked back, not had any problems. So you, 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 I just didn't think I was having enough traffic to make an issue because I had a one gig network. But the truth is the priority was the problem. And that's the Netgear 4250s? Yeah, I, got, I, got, I bought two. That was my Christmas present to myself because I was sick to death of my own networking not working properly. And it really just removed the fact that you can pre-configure them to Dante or NDI or something. It's really a beautiful setup. Yeah, I think if you're not a network engineer or someone that really understands networking, the Netgear 4250s are really the way to go as far as managing these types of things. In the past, what we've done, generally when left, left to our own devices, we put Dante on its entire own copper. Like it just it just lives in its own space and it doesn't deal with anything else. The second level of that is for us to build a VLAN that's going to basically, that priority that we were talking about earlier, but it's going to say you're all of this bandwidth is dedicated to the Dante network. And typically you can do a VLAN with a gig and it's going to move everything around fine and it's not interacting really with everything else. But the 4250 is the silver bullet that you just add that. And uh, I, I don't have one because we manually configure those, but every person we've talked to that has gotten one and just said, well, I added it and then it just worked. <laughs> so so I think like, like what Nigel said. Uh, next question. Simon Ray in the Midlands in the UK says, does the panel have any thoughts on why I don't get any sound from my Aftershocks OpenCom headset when set to stereo mode, but it works fine in mono mode? Is there background information for this in the, oh, there is background information for his issue in the audio general channel on Discord. Go ahead, Jeffrey. Uh, well, I didn't read that uh, from the Discord part, but uh, with the OpenCom, if you, if, and it really depends on what app you're using. If you're using it with Zoom, for example, and you try to use the microphone and the headset at the same time, and you use that in stereo mode, it will not let you do that. Uh, but if you if you go into my, uh, stereo mode with the headset and then use a different microphone, you'll be able to uh, continue with the stereo mode. Second thing is these devices pair with two devices, and uh, when when you're on the iOS, it has that uh, it has that ability to switch back and forth. Uh, and understand what's what's what you're using it for, but with the with the desktop, it doesn't assume anything. So that's what's happening there. Go ahead, Courtney. 
I'm not familiar with that device, whether he's got the wireless version or the wired version. If it's the wired version and it has a TRRS uh, plug on the end of it, most um, computers now detect uh, whether there's a, a microphone involved or a headset involved. And the wiring is different between uh, just stereo headphones, which is TRS, and uh, TRRS, which is left, right, and microphone. So check the connector that you have it on, if it's TRS or TRRS, and you may have to change the mode of um, your sound card or whatever you're plugging it into, if, that, if it is a wired version, uh, to make sure it uh, delivers stereo to the right pins on that TRRS. Otherwise, it may just uh, treat it as a uh, microphone and mono headphone. Next question. Vincent Alvarez in Bellingham, Washington writes, need a mic setup for Zoom, but the user doesn't want too much tech. So I'm thinking USB in an occasionally noisy office area. There's an outside street noise issue. So good side rejection is on his list. Budget's about 700 US dollars plus, and he's looking for an underslung arm. Go ahead, Javier. Uh, it was hard for me to think about a 700 uh, solution for someone that's not technical because I think you can get cheaper solutions because if you start adding things like better things and like more professional things, you're going to get someone not technical like off the rails. So I would go with an MV7 uh, USB. It's going to be a good solution. You can get an arm and you can save yourself like $500. If you can go like a step up, I would go Kyle PR40 and a two-channel interface that has knobs for the gain and for your headphones go ahead uh, jeff so one of the things um i like about the pre-sonos revelator um now i use the interface but they have a usb mic uh quite inexpensive actually but it's the software that really makes a difference so if someone is able to set this up and, and presumably you or someone else is going to be setting this up for them let me just show you real quick <clears throat> and I know, um, uh, you know, there's the new NT1 uh, that, that probably has similar stuff, but you can, it, what it has is amazing and you can hide a lot of it with a simple interface that just has some presets. But for anyone more technical or for anyone that is uh, setting this up, I mean, it's got a, a full rack of, of all these effects. You can set a gate, you can set um, EQ, you can choose different types of EQs, uh, compressor, you can choose, you know, which is your favorite compressor. Um, and you can set all these individually, limiters and voice effects. I mean, the sky's the limit. And then once this is set up or a couple presets, you hide it and either launch it automatically or let them just choose from a couple easy presets and never see this stuff again. But, but DSing, you can tune a lot of the room, uh, with, with these tools. Yeah. Yeah. Go ahead, Jeffrey. Oh, I, I'm also a big fan of course, the MV7. It's, it's all about that for me, for somebody like this, it's all about the hybrid microphone. So if you want to go USB, you can go USB. If you want to switch over to the XLR, you can switch over to XLR. Undersling, uh, undersling arm, uh, you can get the uh, Elgato. I use the Vivo undersling arm. They're, about, they're under $100, so that's, that's pretty easy peasy. Um, and then, of course, this is a dynamic microphone, so it's got, side it's got the, probably the best side rejection 
out of any type of microphone that you can use. And uh, then you can uh, spend a little bit of money on doing a little bit of treatment to try and continue and uh, uh, drop out some of the so sound off the side there. So that's where I would go with that. Yeah, we've been really successful with the MV7 and Elgato underslung, the low low profile LP, I think is what's Elgato LP, but the M MV7 has, you know, just we've tested a lot of mics, <laughs> like you know, and, and sent most of them back. Uh, and the MV7, all as an all around, has been the most successful for us. Uh, next question, Danny Law in Malaysia, and here on the panel, what's considered as a poor soldering job on audio connectors? Oh, let me count the ways. Go ahead, Marty. <laughs> yeah, soldering is an essential tool. Um, you know, if you have to go out on location and you've got like mic cables or any kind of cable that is is field repairable and having a soldering iron is always a handy thing um so looking at what it takes to do a good soldering job you know you can look at the terminals to see if it's a good job or not and across the bottom of this chart here you can see what is a good soldering joint um, on the left and then examples of, of bad soldering joints um, and when you look at an actual solder joint now i couldn't find a picture of uh, a bad xlr soldering joint so these circuit traces will have to do this one here on the bottom right you can see how it's cracked all around and that's the result of a bad soldering joint the the joint will actually crack and can lose connection or can act as a diode and pick up radio um, it's uh, pretty nasty stuff um, now here is a a good soldering joint uh, on an xlr connector this is a female and you can see that the the solder is smooth it's shiny um, it doesn't have any um, resin dark spots in it and uh, and it's not cakey or chunky and, and the way that we do this is to uh, what I do is I, I heat the terminal first and then apply solder to it and let that flow into the terminal. And we call that tinning, right? And you want to put a fair amount of solder there, but um, you don't want to overfill the cup. Then you uh, heat the wire itself and tin that, put some solder on it. And then you put the two together and let them heat up together and the solder on both the terminal and the wire will flow together and give you a good solder joint. Go ahead, Jeff. Yeah, Marty's got it. Uh, go ahead, Courtney. Yeah, Marty covered it really well. The, the best sign of a poor connector is when the wire pulls out. Uh, if you do, one thing, <laughs> other thing I'd, I'd mention is a good mechanical connection is if you've got uh, connectors with a loop on it, Make sure the wire goes through the loop and back out and back, folds back onto itself before you solder it for like the ground wire, uh, the shield wire, because that makes a good mechanical connection. And even if the soldering joint is bad, it won't pull out as easily because it has that uh, loop that will hold it in contact there rather than tending to pull it loose uh, if you just, you know, attach it with the solder only. Go ahead, Jeffrey. It's, and it's all about that soldering station, especially in a portable. If, if you walk up to somebody and say, what does your soldering tip look like? And they, they give you a tip, to, they show you the tip that looks like it's been used for the last 25 years. 
I'd stay away from that. Soldering wire is another thing. If they don't know the differences between soldering wire, then they're probably not good at soldering. So that's, that's another thing to consider. Go ahead, Jeff. And I think I have the best indication of a bad soldering job. Courtney's is good, but, but when there's so much gobs of solder that you actually have multiple contacts all connected through the solder, that's a bad job. Yeah, and one of the things to also look at on the other side of it, you may see something that's soldered well, but you also want to look for heat damage. So if, if, you, if you're doing too much where you heat up that connector, um, you'll see uh, discoloring um, on, the, uh, on the surrounding areas, and sometimes you'll see bubbling on the, on the actual um, cable. And, and so, you're, so those are things you want to watch for too because you want to make sure you have a good solder, but you don't want to, if you overheat things, you may get something that looks like a good solder, but there's all kinds of other damage that may have occurred um, during that process. A lot of times I had the, I used to do this all day. And, um, and so, you know, if I, if I think about the, the connector and I was using smaller connectors than XLR, so they did come up and they'd, they'd swing up like this. And I would try to fill this belly right here, you know, with, you know, with, with, uh, in what Marty was talking about. And then I'd have it tinned and bring it and bring it all the way down. And I wanted my wire generally to tap against that, you know, nearly against the bottom. I'd pull it back up a little bit and then, and then close it up. Um, and, um, and do that 25 times. <laughs> Next question. Scott Mueller in Germantown, New York. If I'm contract content creator and creating works for hire for an organization and I have subscriptions to Storyblocks or Adobe Stock, does my individual license carry through to my finished product for them to post? You know, I think it does. I think actually if you're using it as a component, what you really get in a tricky part if, if you're selling the image itself. But if you're using it within production, um, you know, I think that you're probably in the clear. Uh, I'm not 100% sure. You do want to look at the licensing for each photo. So for instance, if you buy something from iStock or, or other things, some of it is for editorial and some of it's for commercial. And you have to be very careful. It's less about whether you use it for another client or not. That's kind of the expected use case for, for most stock photography is that the, the company buying it is not the company, you know, that, that is going to use it. Um, you know, that's a, that's a relatively common thing, but you have to be very careful of what that, uh, of what that licensing, you have to read the licensing because sometimes, oh, it's really inexpensive because it's only like Pond 5 is like $5 and that looks great. And then you look at the fine print and that's like $5 for your own use. Like if you want, if you want a full commercial international use, it's like $350. And so you just have to be careful of what those are. Um, they tend not, unless you do something egregious, like sell their images, they tend not to come after you because everybody's fear is exactly what you're afraid of and that will ruin their business. So, so they're not, you know, you're, you're, if you're doing it in good faith, you're probably okay, but you do have to be very careful of that licensing setup. Go ahead, Bill, real quick. And entirely what Alex said. I have had one circumstance where a licensed image that I had and I paid a modest amount for, some other company decided they loved it and they negotiated with the stockhouse and paid them a lot of money for exclusive rights to it. And then I got a letter from them saying, hey, um, we have to talk about this. Yeah, and and you know that's that's one of the big challenges with stock with stock art in general, and why I think, especially when you look at some of the mid journey stuff that's coming out right now, that a lot of people are going to be moving more and more to mid journey to do a lot of these things because you can build something that really is not going to be ID'd as a as an original um, because it's building those up block by block, and so I think that that's going to be something that, that. But this is one of the big things that we have to deal with. It's more of a deal in audio, to be honest, than it is in, in, in stills and video. You end up with a problem where someone might claim something on YouTube and then they're claiming their whole product, but it happens to have a stock piece in the middle of it. And then you get a flag because, or even a strike, because they're saying you're using their 
we, we, there's a big, there's a company, uh, there's, there's someone right now that's at after people over using content that they, that, that, that stock photography. And they're actually trying to, um, get people to take their stuff down, which is kind of annoying. So, so you have to be very careful. Stock photography, especially when it comes to social media, can be a little bit tr problematic. Uh, next question. Next one comes to us from Kyle Hammond in uh, Chicago, Illinois. What's the best method of wiping a MacBook Pro to make sure all erroneous files and documents are either removed or saved? Bleach. Anyway, Jeffrey. That was my answer. <laughs> no. Uh, it, the, the, best, the best method is to uh, uh, look for uh, different programs. I, I like to sometimes, well, the old MacBook Pros, I had a, a Linux uh, version that I, I put on, and then there was an app that I could, uh, that I could wipe the drive from there. Uh, but then again, you could also take the uh, drives out and wipe them from there. Uh, but uh, yeah, there's, there's several different programs out there that you can use uh, for the Intel, but the, the M1s, I'm not exactly sure. Go, Jeff. And, and the question is funny because erasing and saving your files are two completely different answers. Uh, and, and of course, a good point that, you know, he didn't say he actually wants the machine to still be usable. So, um, uh, you know, ferrite, um, and and things like that but but one trick you can do hopefully the drive is encrypted and one thing you can actually do is leave it encrypted sign out from all the iCloud find my sign you know release any any um any software that's tied to the machine leave it encrypted a little bit more cumbersome but then there's a procedure to uh reinstall mac os as someone who does not have the key that's that's why you have to unlock it so it's not considered stolen but then you can reinstall erase the drive even though it's encrypted and then nothing on there if anything were to remain no one's getting it good bill there's also some commercial products i've used clean my mac for a long time and one of the things that it does at the end of life of a unit it'll go in and do a deep level uh sometimes very deep second and third level erasure of everything on there including you know, sometimes that takes hours and hours for it to accomplish that but that's another option if you want to make it easy it also has a lot of tools to just keeping things tuned up and letting you know what could be going on in the background and a lot of times you're using an external boot drive or an external USB-C uh, USB um, device to do to wipe the drive completely so that it can go all the way through it. Um, so that you might use a boot drive to to do that wipe. And what it's doing is basically doing ones and zeros until it until it finishes all the way through. Next question. Jack Rupel in Breckenridge, Colorado says, what is the copyright liability for using clips from YouTube videos? Audio from movies? How about music clips from movies? Rick Beato mentions blockers. Is it only specific YouTube content to avoid? Go ahead, Courtney. Yeah, when you talk about liability, there's legal liability, and then there's YouTube's rules, uh, which are different than the copyright liability. There's fair use, which you can... Uh, you know, obviously use a clip for educational purposes, for analysis, for uh, use in a parody. Uh, there are a number of rules. If you look up uh, online about uh, the copyright law, you'll see um, the uh, rules that are for fair use. But um, YouTube works in a different fashion. They have bots that detect patterns in music that will even detect, you know, just somebody doing a cover of a, an original song. Uh, on a different instrument with a different voice, et cetera. Uh, and as long as there's a similarity in the melody or something, you can get a copyright strike. Rick Beato was uh, complaining about the Eagles because they're fairly strict about anyone use, doing covers of their songs and will 
not just demonetize them or issue a copyright strike. They'll force uh, YouTube to take them down, uh, which uh, which he points out doesn't really benefit anybody. Um, you can either share your income if you have a monetized site on YouTube. You can either share your in in income with the copyright holder uh, or give up your income to the copyright holder or the copyright holder can make it uh, be taken down. And when they take it down, it doesn't serve anybody because it doesn't broaden the uh, exposure for that particular piece of music so that the copyright owner would get uh, more you know, exposure. Uh, it, uh, it doesn't really benefit them or you. So he makes some important points. And Jeffrey can talk about the rules on YouTube. Go ahead, Jeffrey. Yeah, that was all stemmed from uh, Charles Berthoud, who's a who's a bass player. Uh, he does a lot of music on on YouTube, and he played Hotel California in its entirety on the bass. And at first, he got a rev share on it, and then they they did the full copyright strike, which he then created a video about it. And I don't know why he's a YouTuber. He should know that you shouldn't use do eagles. You shouldn't do uh, anything from Prince. That's simple as that. But uh, with YouTube, uh, yeah, uh, th there's times that I will get people that take clips from my video without asking me first. If you ask me and then you take a clip, that's one thing. Start taking my clips, then I'm getting a little bit concerned because even though YouTube has gotten a lot better with uh, doing detection, especially if you if you make your video very um, understandable, you, yeah, that they'll they'll see it. Like for instance, I always have a little bug in the corner. And if that if YouTube sees that bug in the algorithm and it's not on my channel, I usually get notified on that. If I don't get notified on that through YouTube, uh, I use TubeBuddy, and TubeBuddy has a notification system. So then I'll see videos that are mine that I put on Amazon, that I put on Facebook, but I don't put on YouTube. All of a sudden, they're on YouTube, and it's like, well, what's going on there? If they if and with the copyright strike, you can uh, a creator like myself can say. I want you to take it down. I I will give you seven days to take it down, or you take it down now, or YouTube will take it down for you, and you'll get a copyright strike from that. So that's how that all works. It really depends on how much of your content you want to give to somebody else, because for me, it's a business, and so if somebody takes my video and puts it on their channel, especially if they're putting in like Amazon links using their affiliate codes, that's not acceptable in my book. So uh, when it comes to this, yeah, at, I don't like the fact that the Eagles uh, do this type of uh, blocking, but, you know, that's their choice. And one other thing, and that is that at any time, somebody can come by and say, that's mine, and I'm going to have you take it down. It, it could be up for years, and you could have had an agreement with them. It's up to the creator's choice, and that's, that's, the, uh, that's the fine line on fair use. And you have some people that are heavy-handed, so they'll give you the strike pretty out of the gate. And so, what a lot of times we do is, if we have copyright and material that we, you know, that we think we may that a client may want to use for whatever reason, I have a lot of burner accounts in, in YouTube. Now they now have a, a way that you can upload it, and it'll tell you what's going to happen now. So you can upload it now; it'll tell you. But for a long time, what we would do is put it on a burner account, let it sit for a couple of days, and just see what 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 comes out of it. <laughs> you know, so do we get a? And, you know, I lost a couple of accounts that way by getting strikes. In the early days, everything was a strike, and now it's gotten much more soft. And if you're not monetizing it like we are, I don't, you know, I just go, well, I got a flag. <laughs> like, like I, you know, I don't really care. So um, flags don't matter. I mean, I mean, they matter if you are monetizing your foot, your, your, you're trying to make money on every video. Flags are a big deal because they're going to demonetize you. But 
Um, if you're not monetizing it, if you're if it's just up there as a service, then uh, the flags are kind of irrelevant. Uh, go ahead, Jeff. Yeah, actually, it's a question for you, Alex. Um, d- did you have a procedure? Because I know a lot of people do just that with the posting it on another account, or even sometimes people will put it on their own account. They won't make it go live yet. You know, they keep it unlisted. But you can still get the strike out of that. So that you can, you if you put it up even unlisted, if you put it up private, it won't get, it won't get, it, the, the Google Eye doesn't see it. But the Google Eye will see it if you put it in unlisted because you could still theoretically embed it somewhere. And so you can still get the strike if you put it on your own, even on your own channel as an unlisted account uh, uh, video. Did you have a procedure or a timeline that you found that you would, I mean, you would presumably take it off of the first account so that the real account doesn't get flagged for duplicate content. Uh, yeah, I didn't, I, I just, we, we put it up as soon as we knew it was fine. We delete it like, like, you know, or we, you know, within two or three days, we would just delete that. But we, again, you don't have to do that anymore. You can now just upload it and it, it will give you the ID and tell you whether you're going to have an issue with it or not. Um, so it's not, not as, um, as big of a deal. Uh, next question. Walt Palmer in Louis, Delaware says, uh, when it comes to keeping working rack equipment cool, would it be wiser to vent cold air directly into racks or attempt to cool the entire room? Go ahead, Marty. Hi. You know, the nice thing about standards is that there's so many of them, but there is no standard about airflow through rack equipment, you know? Um, between intake and outtake, you could have going into the front, out the back, into the front, out the sides, in from the sides, out the back, or out the front. I mean, there's, you know, each piece of equipment does it differently. Uh, generally speaking, however, uh, air will somehow, from sides or back, ex- exhale or... <laughs> will go out into the rack and then heat will rise to the rack. So if you do anything, you would um, exhaust from the top of the rack and cool the room so that air goes in from the, into the rack. And go ahead, Javier. And I think also depends on the size of the of the room and the like the weather where you're you're standing. And like a lot of studios here in Mexico are like by construction and but like Mexico weather below like 21 centigrade, like 70 Fahrenheit. If you're if you're if your temperature like standard temperature is from there, you can start cooling the rack, like trying to work airflow to the racks. Uh, if you're working in a place that the, the weather is hotter and the like the normal temperature of the room, it's around 80 or 90 Fahrenheit or you have to start cooling first the room because even if you throw everything at the racks, it's going to get warm eventually. You go, Bill. Walt, thanks for bringing this up because one of the things I spent more time on than I ever thought possible as I got into studio types work, when I was building my studio, the air handling equipment took way more time than I ever thought it would. And even on the smaller levels, I work in voice booths a lot. And so airflow in those are very complicated because, you know, warm air is going to rise. And if it's getting hot in there, and I was working in Phoenix for a lot of my career, so the outside is very hot. You want to be pulling that hot air from the top as opposed to injecting anything from the bottom. So you usually want to vent at the top and bottom. And then it switches around when you get into the cold weather months because the warm air is going up. And if you're still venting from the top, you're venting all your warm air out and you're freezing in the thing. Air handling is tricky and you do have to pay a lot of attention to it. So I love the fact that you asked this question. Thanks. Go ahead, Courtney. Yeah, it's been covered pretty well. You know, intakes at the bottom, out, outputs at the top because warm air rises according to the rules of convection. 
And uh, the other thing is if the ambient temperature in the room rises above about 80 degrees, then airflow may not even help because some things will not be able to give off. Uh, on, depends on the a temperature at which the devices stop working and what type of heat sinks they have on them, et cetera. Uh, but it may not be able to remove heat from the unit itself if the ambient air temperature is too high. So cool the room too. Yeah, we do the best we can. to. If we're going to put it in a permanent location, we want those racks to be in a smaller room that we can cool the entire room down and that it has individual control. So if you're in a large building, you got to ask for a thermostat, you know, and, and, a, and, a, and you know, a, a specific routing uh, for the AC um, to make that actually work. Uh, or, you know, again, we put stuff into it. When we're portable, um, a lot of times we are trying to put it into a closed environment where we can do that. But that may be where we're sitting um, but it also sometimes we put it into a rack that's closed and then feed AC into it. We've we've had those issues in the past where we had to do that, where we get, it's actually oftentimes a noise um, reduction uh, case that's totally closed, except for some vents at the bottom. And then we just put an AC unit and just feed it right into it. Um, you do have to be careful uh, with that. And you have to test the AC unit because you don't want condensation. So that's the only thing you have to think about. Next question. Zach Jeffers in Spokane, Washington, suggestions for shading in a low-budget live stream setup where inputs are either Zoom, budget cameras, or cameras that are sending flat profiles and so forth. You know, it really depends on what, you ha what you're using for your edit, edit system. Um, you know, so things like OBS and, and even MIMO and, and um, uh, many others will have their own proc amps, you know, you know um, so they can actually do their own shading and you can do minor changes in exposure and even color. Uh, a lot of hardware switchers don't have that. So you have to kind of think about what you um, want to do. It depends on what you're, you know, especially when you're using zoom and budget cameras, that gets to be really hard. I mean, what we're doing to shade this is our, is a really expensive solution, <laughs> the FSHDRs. Um, but, but the, but you, um, that's the thing that you want to think about. The zoom part is the hardest part. The budget cameras, you can add these, we were talked about it before, the 12G bi-directionals, which are about $160 each, will take a LUT. So you can actually add a LUT to everything. I mean, theoretically, you do the same thing with Zoom. But you could, you could put a chart up and color correct to that and then match each camera. And that might be the way to handle a consumer camera that does add a little bit per feed, but it might be another way to do that. Next question. Next one comes to us from Jeff Francis in Columbia, South Carolina. Recommendations for two tabletop mics side-by-side -side for interviews. Fairly noisy environment. The talent's going to come and go on air, so we want to avoid lapel or headset mics. Good morning. Yeah, I would say dynamic uh, cardioid microphones. And um, However, if you can identify the direction of the noise, like if it's coming from an air handling system or one direction in the office, then... Um, you might be able to use a hypercardioid and you just direct position the mics so that the no points are, you know, rejecting from that particular direction. If you're using dynamic microphones, I haven't tried this myself, um, but I've been seeing some evidence that uh, how the preamp is matched in terms of impedance. If you change the impedance, the input impedance on a preamp, could affect how much ambient sound the microphone actually picks up, which is an, an interesting thought concept. There you go, Jeff. Yeah, you know, there's a reason why, well, one of the reasons why the Shure uh, SM7B is so popular, uh, great dynamic mic. 
and also famously the internal shock mount that, you know, will help against any of those table bongs. And, and, you know, depending on your setup, of course, even though it would appear as a tabletop, much like Alex has his mounted, it doesn't mean that the mount has to sit on the table where it is going to get all of the, especially person that's not familiar with working a mic, they're going to bang on the table and do all that other stuff when they're talking. So it's probably a good idea to not mount it onto the table or an arm that puts it in front of them again, like Alex, or appears to be tabletop, but a combination of all the above works great. Yeah, great, Jeff. Yeah, I just wanted to answer Marty where this is a, a, a lobby. So it's a noisy environment with people milling about in the background. Um, so imagine it's a it's a halftime show um, where you can see the the, the audience milling around in the, in the during intermission um, behind these people. One person who's a host who will bring other people in to interview, and they'll get up and down. So that gives a little more context, maybe. Good, Bill. Yeah, I was just going to make a comment. One of the things that surprised me when I started using booming in interview situations is that somebody who would fiddle with anything on the table in front of them, they will never touch a hung directional mic over the front of them. For some reason, it's just in their head that I can't touch that. That's somebody else's equipment. So I would often use two stands and two directional mics overhead just to eliminate that fiddling process. May or may not work for you. Good morning. Yeah, and you might try short shotgun microphones rather than a cardioid. Uh, specifically short shotguns because longer shotguns um, are more sensitive to all of the reflections in a, in a, a reverberant environment like that. So a short shotgun microphone uh, could be a good choice there. Good, Courtney. Sorry, I lost my mouse. Um, yeah, the uh, I would put two mic stands between the chairs if they're sitting in chairs with little boom arms and an SM58 on each. So when the person sits down, they can swing it in in front of them, keep it within about eight to you know seven to eight inches of their mouth. Uh, if you don't want to see the microphone, that could be a problem, but that will give you probably good isolation and uh, the ability to accommodate people coming and going. They can just swing it away and swing it back. The other solution is to give it to give them a handheld mic uh, with an SM58, which is, you know, good for that type of environment and is used all the time in those type of interview situations. But they have to remember to hold it right here, and that is usually a problem. Jeff? And I'm assuming it sounds like this is going to be live. One thing that could be interesting, uh, if anyone else has tried this, is using something like uh, Clarity VX Pro, which does support doing this live, um, is you can really kind of dial in how much of that primary speaker versus the ambient noise uh, that you're hearing. Yeah, and... Most of the time we've done this in this environment has been SM58s or PR40s. Um, usually on some kind of underslung uh, arm have been the, those have been the two solutions that we've probably used the, the most. Um, and we tend, for all the reasons everyone said here, tend not to use the stands on the, on the table. Uh, they get in the way of, the, of everybody, you know, and so we tend to try to mount them somehow so that they're not, not right in front of something. So they have an open area to put whatever they want to put there, oftentimes a coffee. Uh, next question. Ian Alford in London is in with Behringer XR18 is still out of stock worldwide after many, many months. They are leaving so much money on the table. What gives any inside story? Go ahead, Nigel. 
So there can be lots of reasons why you're out of stock. The product may have a, a problem with it. You may manufacture in batch and you've used up your manufacturing slot. Uh, you may have a supply chain problem, which I think is probably the issue here with ADT chips. Um, what becomes interesting, though, is when the supply takes so long to recover, you're within the life cycle of the product. And then the chances are you're going to find it's replaced. So the question, I think, will be, will they ever get the ADC chips they need, or are they going to have to re-engineer the product to be something different, uh, which is what a lot of people have done in the last couple of years? Yeah, the ADC uh, that Nigel's talking about, of course, is the audio-to-digital converters, um, and that the AKM fire in in Japan um, wiped wiped out the world capacity to make these, and a lot of people have been having to architect around them. And so depending on the device, uh, it's taken longer, and in some cases, uh, killed products uh, early because there's just no way that they can get back to even having them available in a, in a timely fashion. Go ahead, Marty. Yeah, uli, uli, uli. I don't know. This problem uh, um, started happening even before the pandemic, man. We made you rich. So what's changed? Um, uh, the supply chain to the U.S. Of, of all of the Behringer mixing products has just been dried up before the pandemic. So, you know, there's excuses about chip shortages and those are certainly valid. Um, but even now there's more product available in Europe than there is in the U.S. simply because they apparently are not shipping as much to the U.S. It's, uh, it's caused a lot of people a lot of heartache in the sales chains. Yeah, it's going to be really interesting to see how that goes. Now, the, <laughs> of course, there's the uh, what's interesting is, is that I, the XR16 is in stock and the X32 are in stock. So it, it seems like it's a component issue with the XR18 that seems to be affecting it. Next question. Nigel DeSalle of Austin, Texas here in the panel. Has anyone taken a still picture with an FX30? And if so, any thoughts? Go ahead, Nigel. So I had an experience this week. We went to the Formula One race last week in Miami. And it's becoming increasingly hard to bring big cameras into big sporting events and trying to fall on the mercy of the security guards that it's really not a professional video camera. It's my it's my Fujifilm X-T4 with a 200mm lens. Uh, it's becoming really frustrating. And it, it's becoming very it's becoming an issue at a lot of events so i'm thinking of switching from the fujifilm which is quite a bulky even though it's an aps-c to something smaller that could do quite good video and still and we've had a lot of conversation here about the fx3 and the fx30 and their video capability but no one's actually mentioned taking a picture with it so i wonder if anyone's actually taken a still picture with it I have taken some pictures. I haven't looked at them though. But the funny thing is, I took, I take them, and then I go, oh, I got it now. I got to. What happened was, I took some at NAB, and then I was left with, I got to find a, a a reader, and I have to find, you know, like there was there was a bunch of pieces that I'm not used to anymore, and I so they're sitting on this camera. I'll we'll try. I'll try to take a. I'll try to find them. You know, I, I did take some photos. The, the mechanism seemed to work great, and I have a lot of confidence in Sony uh, that it probably works great as a still camera. But um, but we'll we'll take it out and test it because I'm not sure. I haven't again. I haven't seen the photos that I took. That's why I really stopped using S you know SLRs in general. Was that it was like this extra hump for me to put things into the system. Whereas when I shoot with my phone, it just ends up on my computer, and I realized the muscle to transfer stuff from my camera to iPhoto that that muscle is completely atrophied. Now, next question. Paul Wallace, Austin, Texas. What is audio GPT? How does it work? What are its capabilities and limitations? And what does this mean for the future of making music? 
you know, I, you know I, it'll be interesting to see, you know, according to, um, uh, you know, some of the articles, it's supposed to do a couple different things. And so audio captioning, uh, a lot of things are doing that. The Whisper system, Whisper AI is kind of where, and there's Mac Whisper, and there's a lot of other things that do that. Uh, source separation, um, this is something that we, that I've learned to really enjoy a lot. So what you can do is take a song and put it in, and it will just pull the voice, the, and with incredible clarity, like the the reverb, everything. It just pulls the voice out. It'll pull the bass. The my I do it. My daughter uses it a lot because she's learning. She'll learn bass tunes, the bass for a for a pop song, and so she'll strip these out. Um, uh, on there's like an iPhone app that does it, and she'll strip the 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 actual um bass line out so that she can learn. She can just listen to it by itself. Um, it'll strip out guitars, drums, keyboards. And just pull them all out. It doesn't do it perfectly, but it, it's a kind of an amazing, magical thing when it, when it works. Um, uh, image to audio. Uh, so it can t- generate audio that fits the content of an image, which I think is fascinating. Uh, score to audio generates singing voice given text, notes, and note durations. And so, so those are all things that that audio GPT is supposed to be able to do. But we, what we are going to, we're at the cusp of, is a, a place where creatives, but not necessarily skilled creatives, are going to have an incredible amount of tools to play with. Now, do I think that the what you generate with Audio GPT will end up on an album? Eh, maybe, but what it will do is let somebody sit there and play with a whole bunch of ideas really, really, really fast and get some inspiration, and then go do something else with it. So it's it's interesting. Uh, next question. Jeff Cohen, Miami Beach. Up next, Zoom on iPhone with an external audio interface works great when it works, but very inconsistently for me. Anyone else tried this, either unavailable in Zoom or it works, then randomly switches to the internal mic, but no problems with other apps. Jeff, what are you using as an external audio interface? I've tried a, a number of different ones, and, and they all have the same uh, behavior. The one I like to use with it is um, my Audient Evo, because that's truly controllable by the host device, meaning the host device, even iOS, can uh, the volume basically can actually control the gain. I'm sure like a lot of us, uh, you know, we try things like this, and, and my goal in trying this what we try it because just to see if we can and so in other words use the the great camera and processing of the iphone but still have a professional audio chain so the the interesting thing that i've found at least is it, the the interface whichever one i connect works perfectly with every other thing on the iPhone. So any other app, it works perfectly, consistently, no problem. It's when you get into Zoom that, and it really seems random, I haven't been able to even find a pattern where sometimes I'll I'll have closed the Zoom app, I open it, maybe it sees that device is available, and maybe it doesn't. And then, uh, and then even if it does see it, and I connect and everything's working great, Again, seemingly random. I'm sure it's not, but I. Uh, but then all of a sudden, it'll just lose that interface and mm-hmm. go back to the internal mic, and that interface is no longer available. Go, Jeffrey. Yeah, we did a lot of testing at NAM, uh, Ronnie and uh, Simon and myself, uh, when it came to this because we were having a lot of problems trying to connect up the interface, audio interface into Zoom. That then and went what into we're using? the live view. Uh, well, we used, I don't, I'm not exactly sure what he used for the interface, but then we ended up using the Rode 
microphones. And then we ended up using my Sony microphones uh, with just a simple, uh, with just a simple adapter to into the iPhone uh, because the road did not have attenuation to it. So if it pushed into zoom with the original audio on, then you had all the noise as opposed to the Sony's, which would attenuate the sound a little bit. Um, the biggest problem with the iPhone was trying to get that original sound to turn on and then stay on. And uh, that was, and I'm not exactly sure Ronnie documented all the steps that you need to do to do that. But if anything changed in the in Zoom, like if you switched from room to room, you had to deal with all that audio again. So uh, don't see that happening on other programs. But then again, don't use too many other programs than Zoom uh, to uh, to stream out. Go ahead, Bill. Yeah, I've been running into this, and I think it has to do something. I'm guessing here, but I think it has to do something with the lightning interface. I've had multiple lightning attachment things to my phone to try to get audio in and out cleanly, and I've had problems with most of them over the course of time. The only thing it used to do it for me was Filmic Pro would always reliably get my lightning interface from this uh, uh, Ceremonic unit in, but as soon as they sold it off and it became the subscription model, I... I it stopped working somehow. So they can change things on the inside of these devices that make them less reliable in terms of audio. I am hoping, and thank you, European Union, for kind of forcing Apple towards USB-C. If they are class compliant in USB-C, then we're going to probably open up to a new world of easier audio and video in and out of these mobile devices. And that should allow all of us to do better work. I'm also encouraged by the fact that Final Cut and Logic are coming to them because that means they understand there's a huge market for people who want to do audio and video in and out of these mobile devices so they may get this right finally fingers crossed now the ones that are doing the lightning themselves i'm sure that could be a problem bill i'm talking about interfaces that are just pure regular old good usb and you know we use these lightning to usb dongles and, and uh, as i've mentioned on the show a few times you have to have both the official Apple one and a knockoff because sometimes one works when the other one doesn't. So, of course, I've tried that. But as far as the interface is concerned, again, I've had every other app work perfectly. I, I can hear playback through the interface and I can record with apps that just record audio. Every time they work with the uh, connected interface, it's never a problem. It's only been Zoom for me and, and very much like all, all the behavior Jeffrey mentioned as well. The one that I've been the most successful with in general is what Bill had talked about a little bit, but this is the Ceremonic that I that I use. Um, and this is a light to lightning. So it's dual dual XLR to lightning. So, and I use these with electrosonics. <laughs> so, so, so these are, um, and so this is just XLR out of the electrosonic into, you know, the receiver into this, um, and you attach them all onto the rig and, um, and you have them all there. Uh, and this is to lightning and I haven't had any trouble with it, uh, attaching to anything over time. Uh, the only other one that I've used is the, um, studio technologies, uh, Bluetooth to Dante, or I'm sorry, no, Audinate, Audinate's Bluetooth to Dante. Um, so then if you have a Dante device that that can drop into it, it actually just shows up as a headset. So it doesn't even, there's nothing special about it. It just goes, oh, I, I see a Bluetooth headset and I'll, and you can inter interface with it. And I that's been successful with my phone without, without anything else because it doesn't look at it as any kind of certain class of audio input. It just looks at it as a Bluetooth headphone. 
And uh, that Ceramonic you've used with Zoom specifically? Yeah, yeah I've used mm. this with Zoom successfully. I haven't had any issues with it. Now, of course, I'm going to have to test it again because I've ruined it by saying there's no problem and it will now have a problem. <laughs> and I have to admit, I haven't done it in the lead at latest OS, so that might be the only other thing for us to look at. Uh, next question. Uh, Zach Jeffers in Spokane, Washington's up next, looking for options to bring local network streaming devices, and he specifies iOS, SRT, and so forth, into a live stream setup, Mac, ATEM, Wirecast, something like that, without a Windows machine. Recommendations on bringing these in streams without the Windows SRT mini server. Good morning. Yeah, we had Epiphone on the other day. Uh, I mean, uh, Epifan, rather, and... Uh, Looks like uh, some of their hardware pieces, like the Epifan Mini, will bring in SRT feeds. And so that's a dedicated hardware device. Yeah, and, and it depends on where you're trying to bring it in from. Are you trying to bring it in from somewhere that's, out, that's on the network? Or is it something that you're trying to bring in? There's plenty of, um, Larix is a pretty good one to bring SRT, you know, to move SRT. So if Larix shows up on a, on a variety of different things that, that, you, um, that you may want to look at, but you can have an iOS device sending that out. Um, another thing to look at if you're trying to send something up and then pass it over around the world and have it pop out the other way, uh, other side is, again, Epifan has some solutions. Also, AWS a couple weeks ago released the gateway. So their, um, their, their elemental gateway will let you just turn a PC into a Linux box if you've got cards in it, it'll just pump SDI out you know, from there or NDI, um, you know, without the, without the, the so that's another way to um, look at it there. Next question. Peter Moore in Auckland, New Zealand writes, I just submitted to YouTube and Google, well, Alphabet, an enhancement idea I have, but withheld the info subject to NDAs they need to sign. Anyone else doing something similar and any advice appreciated? Cheers. I go ahead, Courtney. Be very, very careful because, uh, Apple, uh, Google, Microsoft, they all have a tendency to Sherlock people, which is they'll, they'll take a good idea. Someone will present it to them. They'll, they, I don't know whether they're going to sign an NDA. Most lawyers on big corporations like that refuse to sign NDAs because they want to be able to steal things and they don't want to illegally encumber themselves in case they've got parallel development going on, which you may not know about. Uh, and then you could claim, uh, you know, that they stole your idea when indeed they've been working on it for five years. So a lot of times uh, that makes it very difficult for a large corporation like that to sign an NDA because they don't know until they see what you're presenting to them. If they have something that they're developing in parallel and secret uh, along, along the same lines. So you're going to have a lot of trouble doing that. Patent it. If you can, if it's a device, if it's software, copyright it uh, and protect yourself as well as you can. If you are able to achieve a patent or a copyright, then you at least have something to stand on uh, when they do steal your stuff. Go, Jeffrey. If you need to have an NDA, because I looked at this question two different ways. If you need to have an NDA uh, for what you're suggesting to them, then this is probably not the best route to go on that. The better route is to do a more direct uh, connection with somebody from Alphabet so you can discuss that so they can take those, those steps with their legal team to do the NDA. Now, the other way that I looked at this was that you were talking about an enhancement that included something from another company that had an NDA that you signed an NDA for. If that's the case, then you should let the other company you should give your information to that other company and let them go through the channels to uh, put in the enhancement because they have the ability to release the NDA. Yeah, Bill. 
I'm informed by a friend of mine who's a writer who submitted scripts to Hollywood for many years, and he told me in the early part of that, they don't want your ideas. In fact, they're scared to death of your ideas, and they will do everything possible to make sure there's a friction filled process for getting any idea into a studio because of things like the Art Buckwald problem where they got popped and lost millions because somebody claimed the idea early and had enough juice and enough legal power to get into that. Literally, uh, the only way to get a script into Hollywood is to get an agent who is understood and work your way through the system so that that agent submits it on your behalf and everybody understands the parameters of who owns the rights to what. If you don't play in their system, often they just don't let you play, period. Yeah, as an individual sending an idea to Google and asking them to for an NDA, they're not going to give you the time of day. <laughs> just, just to let you just be just to be like as blunt as we can be they're not gonna it's not even a they're not even scared or anything else they're just like they don't sign they sign ndas with known partners that they're doing a bunch of work with and everything else they're not going to sign the ndas with an individual like so just to manage your expectations that's not they're, they're they probably won't even respond um so that's that's my that's my guess <laughs> you know so it's it's just it's a big company and un unless you've already pierced the veil of talking to somebody that actually need something from you from Google, um, the chances of them paying attention to, to anything that, that goes that comes in is pretty low. Go ahead, Nigel. I, I was just going to add to that. I, I've had these, the teams work for me that read these things. And let me tell you, I don't put my top product marketing personal product manager on this. This is a newbie job for the team. And they read them very scantily. Yeah, yeah, and and yeah. If, if someone asks for, if someone sends them an idea, it might bounce around a little bit. But if someone says, "Hey, I need an NDA," they're just being like, "Okay, I'm not gonna," you know. So, so I think that that's 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 most likely the the the, the challenge that you'll have there. A quick reminder that we are going a second hour of Q and A. We still got a lot of questions stacked up, but there's room for more, and we have a great audio panel here. So, if you've got audio questions or general questions, you go ahead and throw those questions into Makana. Let's go to the next question. Michael Graves in Houston, Texas. Does anyone make a wireless pack that accommodates both a headset mic and an in-ear monitor? Good morning. Yeah, this is uh, Zaxcom's area, and they have a device called the TRX FB3, uh, which is exactly that. It's a it's a a microphone transmitter and an IFB receiver at the same time in one pack. Um, and uh, I would uh, I would look them up. Yeah, the other one that we've seen is the, the Shure Microflexes. So the Shure Microflex Lav, um, you know, transmitter or the, their little transmitter. It's it, um, the Microflex line is not really designed for the highest end video um, audio. It's it's not like Zaxcom. Zaxcom is at a, at a different level, but Microflex is really good for corporate education and you know basic broadcast uh, uses. And what it, it uses the DECT um, platform, so it's a slightly more compressed platform there. Um, but what it does is it'll have uh, you can have eight, you know, eight of these little receivers. You just put them into their into the charging and push a button, and it'll just reorient them. It's uh, it has a wireless receiver for those that goes straight to Dante, so it's very convenient for these kinds of things. And one of the things that it has that we like a lot, in fact, we've used these for comms at times. Um, is a earpiece as well as a mic input, and so it's a standard, I think, TA4 mic input for sure, and uh, with a with an eighth inch jack, and it works great <laughs> for for that. If uh, again, I wouldn't do a concert in it, but uh, if you're doing basic uh, education and corporate, it works really really well. Good, Courtney. 
Yeah, it depends on your application. If you're looking to use something like this for comms, of course, there are wireless belt packs made by RTS and ClearCom that are designed specifically for this that have a microphone and earphone and a talkback system for talkback. Mm -hmm. But the quality of the microphone is a lot of times it's Vox voice-operated or push-to-talk only. And uh, it's not high quality at all. It's designed primarily for comms use. And when we use them for comms, the we use them for shows as well, but when we use them for comms, it's because it gives us an ability to do a much lower profile back and forth. So we can have somebody who has something that's like nearly secret service level, you know, um, you know, low, low profile, um, as opposed to the big belt packs and so on and so forth that we tend to get with regular comms. So for executive things, it, we find that it, it's pretty useful. Uh, next question. Zach Jeffers in Spokane, Washington. Has anybody used the TP-Link Omada line of network gear that directly competes with the Ubiquiti Unify line? It looks like a good alternative. I have inconsistent stability experiences with Unify. Uh, yeah, I, I haven't used the TP-Link, um, that line of, of networking. I'm not sure if anyone here has. Um, yeah, the Ubiquiti lines... Um, We've been, a lot of people here have been pretty happy with, I think a, a fair number of folks have the Dream Machine, which is the, that line and that that run. And I'm not sure if that's the same Unify line that you're um, that you're using. I have an Amplify in my house um, that I'm planning to re replace, so I wouldn't recommend that. <laughs> so it's, it's a little rocky. Uh, but uh, the Unify line, it's interesting that you've had issues with it because uh, most people that, a lot of people in our group have are using some version of Ubiquity's uh, solutions. Uh, next question. Next one comes from Funshak Darji from Dharamshala, India. Namaste, he says, from India. Does the panel carry spare power supplies for their A10 Mini Extremes? And if so, which brand? Thanks. Go ahead, Jeff. Well, I haven't until now, but this has made me think, yes, I need to carry an extra power supply. So uh, I'm going to start uh, trying some out. But uh, it's a pretty standard 12-volt uh, supply. It's just the locking connector that's a little harder to find. And you don't technically, I mean, the locking connector is a nice to have. You don't technically need it. Um, it you can buy those the, with the barrel input without the locking connector and just stick it in there as well. So it's, it, 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 you just have to get the right, um, the right diameter for both the internal and external uh, part of that barrel connector. Go ahead, Courtney. Yeah, I was just quickly trying to find the uh, the amperage needed. Uh, any 12-volt uh, regulated supply should work okay. Uh, as long as it's well-filtered DC output. And you can find a lot of those online uh, fairly cheaply, especially designed for running LED uh, strip lights, things like that, that have five, amp, uh, five amps or more. And you'd, like I say, you don't have to have the locking collar, like Alex said, and, and uh, just stick it in the barrel connector. I think it's uh, 5.1 or 2.1 and 5.5. Yeah, and, and, and the gen... And the general rule of thumb is that uh, you just you just got to you, you want to always match your voltage. Voltage is important to match exactly, and the amps of the power supply have to be higher than the than the amperage of the the amps that are available have to be higher uh, than the, the device that is asking for. So you can put if it's asking for one and a half amps, you can connect it with a three amp as long as it's still twelve volts. Uh, next question. Jeff Francis in Columbia, South Carolina. Recommendations for camera for side-by-side -side interviews. We'll need to change from the host alone to a two-shot on air. So autofocus is preferable. Need good audio input. The camera body and or lens combo or camcorder. And he's got, uh, he's looking for under 3000 US dollars. And Jeff, are you trying to have a, like a PTZ bounce back and forth? Or are you trying to have it be 
um, is, is someone going to operate it? Someone will operate it most likely, but probably not a super skilled camera operator. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I have to say that I'm, I'm pretty happy with the FX30 that I'm using in this show right now. Um, the autofocus is pretty exceptional. <laughs> so, so it, you know, as far as you won't have to do any focusing um, unless there's a lot of, it has to rack between one or the other. And in that case, you literally just tap on the screen. You know, you just go, I want that person in focus and it'll, it'll pop them in. If two, when there's two people that it could potentially have in focus, it's going to grab one of them. Um, but, you know, and it's looking for faces. So it, it is going to ID a face. But you can see that, you know, if I if I focus on my hand here and then I pull away, it, it catches up pretty quickly as far as that that process. And uh, yeah, real fast. Yeah, it's it's the fastest autofocus that that and I, and I finally what happened for me is that I started using that FR7. I, te you know, I had a test unit for the FR7 and Got so used to autofocus, I couldn't give it up. <laughs> so, 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 just not having to be stressed about it. So, um, I so think. So, what lens? Um, you're the, the, the best lens. Close. Is yeah, I think probably a 24 to 105. There's a 24 to 105 lens that for the FX30, I think that is um, the probably, I think it's 24, 28 to 105, 24 to 105. It's a, and, and it may put you. And it could be really close to $3,000 for both of those together. But that's going to give you a pretty wide shot as well as a longer shot. I mean, the typical thing that you would do there is a, you, you want a little bit more than the 24 to 70 for those shots because you want to go, you're going to go back a little bit wider and then go in a little bit further um, typically. And so that, that 28 to 105 or whatever gives you just a little bit more uh, dynamic zooming you know for it now it's an f4 it's not an f it's not going to be an f2.8 or f1.4 so that anytime you do a zoom especially with a sony you're gonna you know there's not going to be as many options on the uh on what the the f-stop is that you're doing but you but you do have a super 35 so you're gonna have that there but i at this point i i understand you know um the other i mean obviously the other one that would fit into this would be something like a black magic um you know the 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 Blackmagic Cinema 4K with um, 24 to 70 would do it under thir under three thousand dollars. You get a good good show, but the fine uh, focusing is is the thing that becomes more challenging. So if you want something that's really going to have good autofocus, Sony is definitely the best autofocus out there, and then Panasonic is probably second from a video camera perspective at the moment. You know, so the Lumix lines have as Panasonic spent. A lot of money <laughs> on, on there on, on trying to catch up with Sony, um, but those are the two that are probably the most most robust autofocus systems. Um, next question: Douglas Carmichael's up next, and he says, "Prime Computer, the 1980s computer manufacturer, produced a simultaneous transatlantic product launch in 1982 with email between the U.S. and Europe, along with a live video conference. Have you ever worked on or seen events that felt ahead of their time?" Good, Nigel. So prime computers, thank you for that flashback to when mini computers were going to rule the world. Whatever happened to them, I guess they went the same way the dinosaur did. Um, I think uh, two thoughts crossed my mind. The first time I went to an event that Google did called Zeitgeist, which I don't think they do anymore, but was a sort of commercial customers event, which was a sort of more where internal. Did, where did you go to see it? Was it in Arizona? It was. Okay. Were you there too? I was, it depends okay, on which, which said. Yeah. We'll discuss another time. <laughs> yeah. But it was, um, it was an exceptional event. Mm -hmm. it, was, it was a sort of uh, less public version of a TED 
event. And I thought um, there were a couple of speakers there that left a huge impression on me. Who were the speakers? Oh, I guess you can't say it, can you? Uh, well, one of them is now a, uh, was the mayor of Newark, whose name I don't remember. Mm-hmm. Um, so he would, although I, he, I thought, I thought I saw a future president for the first time ever. I saw a young politician and thought, wow, he could be president. Right. Uh, so, um, just don't remember his name now, but, uh, <laughs> anyway, um, he was, he was exceptional. So that event I thought was the first time I'd been to something of that scale where I felt I was really included in something. Uh, small audience. I mean, I used to go and do the all things digital events, and I remember those were great as well. Particularly because it was the only time that uh, Jobs and Gates had dinner together every, and it was fun watching who would be willing to approach that table and talk to them, and who wouldn't. And you know, with only three hundred people in the room, that was interesting. Long stories about that. Uh, the one piece of technology and teleconference I want to talk about was was actually this thing, which was the Halo Room that HP did. And I first did one of these in, uh, I think it was about 2005. And I have to tell you, it was the first time I actually got video conferencing in a productive way. And as far as we've come, nothing's quite recreated the experience of actually being in a room where the table you were in front of completed with the table of the people at remote sites. And you actually felt you could have a conversation without the start and stop. And that was the first time I saw a sort of telepresence where I actually felt, you know what, this might actually work. Go ahead, Courtney. Uh, one thing I remember, I used to go to computer swap meets uh, in and around Los Angeles to buy computer parts, et cetera, throughout the 80s and 90s. And at one in Pasadena, there was a swap meet in Pasadena one time, and there was a guy there demonstrating a virtual reality headset happened to be James Blinn or Jim Blinn, who was a pioneer in computer graphics. And I think this was the late 80s, maybe early 90s, where he let you put on the the headset. The Blinn shader is well-known. The Blinn shader and let you put it on and walk through and and turn your head and it would be, you know, it was basically what we have today in virtual reality, but like, you know, 30 years ago. (laughs) Yeah, go ahead, Bill. So for me, the one moment like that that changed my entire arc was the first time I shot an interview uh, on a DV camera. Uh, I'd been using analog up to that point, and I'd always had an expectation for the picture. And I took my little camcorder. It was a pro bono job for the Boy Scouts. And I was shooting a a young young gentleman, maybe 12, 13 years old, African-American, and he was in a relatively, he was in the gym, but we had darkened the gym because we were projecting stuff behind him. And I looked at the monitor, and I remember the day I looked at that, and I thought, my God, all the blacks are just perfect. He looks fabulous. This is so much different than all the analog video I've shot through my whole career. And I immediately said, I've got to sell everything. And I don't care what they're saying about digital online. This shot is way better than anything I've ever executed, and I didn't have to spend a lot of money on the equipment to get it. And I just knew digital was going to sweep the industry at that point. Next question. Uh, Zach Jeffers, Spokane, Washington, looking for ways to record on-source high SPL sources like high-performance engines and so forth. Thoughts on 32-bit devices and microphones that won't clip? Javier? Uh, yeah, definitely you have to use, uh, I would use uh, uh, a good uh, audio, inter- uh, sorry, uh, recorder, like a mix breed. It has a 32-bit. Uh, I would also take a couple of different high SPL mics, like there's like dynamics, dynamics, like the Sennheiser 421 that can handle like, I think, 150 plus. 
Or there are condensers like the TPA 4011 that also can take a lot of SPL. I'll try different like different positions because sometimes capturing high uh, SPL is also about the where you place the mic because you don't want to get like just the just noise. You have to take the characteristics. So try different placements and even like different uh, rooms or like out in the open. Like experiment a bit, and I think with that combination you can get good sound. I go, Jeff. So dynamics are a great choice because they're not going to clip internally because there's no electronics in there. If you're going to go condenser, uh, you'll need to look at specific condensers, usually smaller diaphragm. Um, Earthworks has some that go up to 150 dB SPL. Um, the 32-bit is not as important because you know you're recording a high level source so you can set the preamp accordingly and fit it within 24 bits of resolution which has got 144 db of dynamic range you're just fine 32 bit is a safety net when you're not sure what the level is going to be and you have to be cautious about overload so i think that's less important than picking a microphone that's not going to clip internally good morning Right. So you have to look at the specs of a particular microphone and look at the max SPL. And uh, there are some microphones where you can purchase them with a lower sensitivity, uh, usually known as red dot. So they will handle a higher SPL signal going in. Um, but then what are you going to record that to? And when you say on source, I'm wondering if this is an unattended recording uh, or if this is something you're bringing into your mixer to be mixed into other program material for recording. Uh, if you're doing wireless, for example, depending on where this is, um, again, I'm going to go back to Zaxcom because uh, they have this feature on all of their equipment called NeverClip. And it's a, it's a way that they build the preamps in both their transmitters and in their standalone recorders like this one, the ZFR 300, where the preamp cannot clip. It will adjust to even the highest uh, signal level and give you a clean recording. Next question. Alexander Knight in Vancouver, British Columbia. Anyone from Epifan in Discord? I want to follow up with respect to some of the questions, some of my questions about their soon-to-be-released lower-cost pricing tier. Not sure who to reach out to, so I can work out what I'm trying to do with some technical questions. Yeah, I don't know if we have anybody there, but um, contact us and we'll see if we can put you in touch with someone. Next question. Peter Moore, Auckland, New Zealand, is back. Uh, can we get Claluck Lopez Waterman back on here to talk about any DMX updates, the tech, et cetera, if he saw at NAB, even NAM, and to discuss anything new and exciting in his realm? Thanks. claluck has been pretty busy, but we'll see if we can get him on. Next question. Paul Wallace, Austin, Texas. Meta, an opportunity to introduce AI agents to billions of people in ways that will be useful and meaningful. The company is exploring the addition of chatbots within the multiple messaging services. Will this work? To some degree. I mean, a lot of things work to some degree, and then they, they get kind of watered down, and like, it's just okay. So we'll see how it goes. Next question. Vincent Alvarez from Bellingham, Washington. My coworker has been using a cheap airport purchase, $30 Sony headset for years, wants to upgrade, but stay in the Sony family for his Zooms. Any ideas? Well, for his Zooms, I would get rid of the over-the-ear headset. <laughs> if that's what he's, if he's using that. I mean, if he's using a headset there, but I would, you know, if he's, uh, 
Yeah, I would get rid of the over the ears. So then it's just a matter of fig deciding what you want. I don't think there's a lot of in-ear Sonys that are cost-effective. Go ahead, Bill. I just wanted to, uh, I applaud him. I'm sorry. It just for using the term airport purchase, because I've got like five of those in my life that I was going somewhere and I needed to do something and I just needed something and I bought it at an airport and I felt bad about doing it. And it turned out to be something that I carried with me for a long time. It just really, I, I'm sorry, I, I'm really off topic, but that just made me laugh, smile. So thank you, Vincent, for that. I mean, I think the, the the common ones we see a lot are the MDR 7506s uh, from a cost, relatively cost um, effective solution. So those might be ones you want to look at. Uh, next question. Clive Ludford in Kingston, Jamaica. On the low budget end, does anyone know if the Canon C200 does clean HDMI? Thinking of live streaming for a house of worship. I don't, I don't know. Um, it's funny. I've used the C300 and, uh, and we've used the SDI out of that. It should, if it has an HDMI out, it, there should be a way to turn all those interfaces off to get to a clean output. Um, I don't know what it is, uh, but cause typically we've used the SDI output, um, there, but if it's got a, uh, if it's got an HDMI, it's just a matter of finding how to turn off the external, uh, display. Next question. Douglas Carmichael has an interesting one. How do you re-energize a team or work group when a challenging project has hit a plateau? Go, Jeff. I think one option would be, since this is a team and probably each person in the team has their own specific task or area of focus, is maybe just rotate. Think of the old uh, the old volleyball game when you know it's time for the team to rotate. Everybody move to the next position, and even if it's not your strong suit, you're going to see things that the previous person has become blind to. Go ahead, Nigel. At some point, assuming you can't change the team, uh, you need to bring everybody back together and and ask, you know, where are we going? You need to reset the end goal. You need to reinvigorate the people to the challenge. Um, ahead of you but uh, if it's a very long-term project over many years you're probably gonna have to find a way of cycling people through the team because that way it gets fresh and you get new ideas inside next question jeff cohen miami beach here on the panel thoughts on the logitech project ghost video audio booth good nigel I can imagine there's an airport lounge somewhere looking to spend a silly amount of money on something to make uh, people impressed with the technology they have available. And that's pretty much, I think, the market for this sort of thing. Or people who are maybe a little older who want and have a lot of money to spend, who want a really simple way to do teleconferencing with family or business things where they, they want a, a preset environment. I think long term, I'm not quite sure what the point of this would be that we've got to make teleconferencing from our phones and from our laptops higher quality and easier to do. And that's really where the market is. Go, Jeff. It's funny that their, their stated uh, market, uh, and they partnered with Steelcase, the, the office furniture manufacturer, to do this. It, their stated target is offices, to put this in offices. Um, and, and let me see if I can show this real quick, if uh, if anyone hasn't had a chance to look at it yet. I mean, this is uh, essentially what it looks like right now. Um, it's so, again, sitting in an office. And, you know, I think what they're doing from a technological standpoint 
is is trying to show what that ideal scenario was. By the way, to be clear, I was going to answer with this in the previous question, have you seen anything that, you know, you think is is groundbreaking moment? Uh, and I was going to present this as this is the opposite. I hope this is not uh, because I think to Nigel's point, we need to make it better to not have to go into this. But I'm curious if anyone, you know, who's read the details, I mean, some of the the specifics they're trying to do make sense. They they were very careful about the distance so that the person you're talking to looks um at the, their their face is the correct scale, so it looks like you're talking to a person. Um, you know, they're they're using the teleprompter model so that you know people are maintaining eye contact. So that part's interesting. Uh, again, I hope this is not the future and just a stepping stone. Go ahead, Courtney. Yeah, I've seen this technology used uh, in museums a lot. The uh, Holocaust Museum in Los Angeles has a uh, an exhibit like this where they have survivors. The Holocaust, uh, they've digitized thousands of hours of the survivors into the computer and they have them presented like they're sitting on stage. And you can act, interact with them and, and a lot of these people are no longer living uh, because they were quite old when they digitized this. And you can ask them any question and they answer and it looks, it's a basically the Pepper's Ghost, which is a reflective uh, partially transparent piece of glass reflecting a monitor and the computer outputs the images. So it's a similar technology as that, only with live cameras and live people rather than a computer-generated output. So something like this is fairly expensive because it's a large piece of reflective glass and camera and big monitor, etc. So it's an old, old, old technique, though. Go ahead, Bill. I'm just not sure that it feels very warm and humid. And I, I guess I'm looking at this picture that they have on the Verge article about this. And it looks cold and antiseptic to me. And I'm not sure that's what I want to appear as to all the people who are watching me do something. Maybe, you know, it's a look, but boy, I sure do more like what we're doing here, which is everybody has the same standards. But each frame is individual and gives you some hint about that person. I understand in an airport you can't really do that, but it just seems weird to me. Yeah, go ahead, Marty. Do you remember watching 2001, A Space Odyssey, where um, the actor was in an airport and he steps into an AT&T video phone booth? That's what this reminds me of. Um, but it's also, it's also a take on a modern huddle space uh, uh, video conferencing uh, area, only, only for one person rather than a small group of people. You know, it, it, it's an interesting idea in that it's a pre-made product that can be set up and installed in an office space. Uh, rather than having to be designed by an integrator and built by a construction company, um, it'd be interesting to see how well this how well this does or or what it develops into. Yeah, I think it's interesting. I, it looks really uncomfortable to me. Like I wouldn't be comfortable sitting in there to to do anything. Um, so I think that it that's the I I do I was thinking about this something related to this for a while, which is that. You know, companies are having a lot of trouble getting the employees to come back to the office, and um, and you know they've Apple's lost a lot of <laughs> headspace of people just not coming back. I mean, they they were talking about their some of their head of AI and some other folks just said I'm not they're not going to come back to the office. I think that a lot of times they think well people don't want to go to the office, but my argument will be is that they just don't want to sit in the corral 
you know, like cattle. Like, you know, and that's what it feels like when you're in a lot of these open spaces. You can't think, you can't get on the phone, you can't do, you know, and then, and then you have problems getting onto virtual conferencing because there's all these people around you and you can't have a conversation. So everyone's got headphones. So the thing is they, they created these, the cell, right, for all these corporations is that you could, uh, everyone's going to interact with each other. That's not what happens. I, you know, I've been a gray badge, a yellow badge, an orange badge, a red badge, you know, all over Silicon Valley. And I can tell you what everybody does. They put their headphones on. Like they, everyone just puts their headphones on and they're more isolated than they were before because that's the only way that they can get anything done. And then they all run to the conference rooms and the conference rooms are scheduled, you know, it's every half hour and, and you, there's people lined up. Like when you get to the end of your half hour, there's people lined up waiting to take their conference room, you know? And so all these things are, and it's just, it's so stressful. Like, you know, and it, and of course they don't want to go back to that, you know, when they could just jump in from home. The issue is, is that there's good reasons to come back. I think if companies went back to giving people offices and they don't have to be huge off, you know, corner offices, but if you, if you gave people a cube that was closed, that they could, you know, maybe a glass door so you can always see what's going on in there or whatever they, they want to have there, but it's like a 10 by 10 cube and it's designed for video conferencing so that they can just jump on calls. It's going to be quiet. It's going to, you know, they can just interact with everybody else. And they have, it looks good. It sounds good. They can have whatever they want in the background. You know, they can design their wall, you know, to be what they want. And it's got a nice thing. I think a lot of employees, <laughs> the other side of it is going to work is that there's lunch and there's things to do and you get away, you get out of the house and there's a whole bunch of other things, benefits. And I think that they're just not, Companies want to have everybody come back on their terms, which is back into the corral like cattle, you know, and I think that if they gave employees that, they took up the extra space, let some employees, if you want to stay home, stay home or come in part of the time. But if you want to come back, we're going to give you a great space that you can actually video conference. And that means that when you're video conferencing with the folks at home, you look great. You don't, you're not in some kind of weird thing. You're not finding an echoey conference room. They're all echoey. Um, you know, and, and so I think if you created great spaces for people, they would actually interact more than they are right now in an open office because they would just hit a button and they'd talk to somebody and everybody looks good and sounds good. When you control that atmosphere, you can have it be very low key and look and sound really good. Go ahead, Jeff. Yeah. Uh, by the way, if anyone just saw, uh, you know, uh, open AI CEO just uh, a couple of days ago, you know, came out and said, Hey, we've tried this fully remote, uh, work model. Uh, it failed. It's over. Um, so that's interesting, uh, f even from his standpoint, but you know, the reason by the way, that I, I hope this type of booth is, is merely a stepping stone is, and to Nigel's point and what Alex said, you know, I think we need to make the normal working environments, whether it's someone working from home and, and they're just in a room that cannot be treated, uh, not realistic. It's in their, their, their living room or, I mean, this to me is the equivalent of uh, if you worked in an office when we worked in offices and to make a phone call, you had to go to a phone booth. You know, eventually everyone got a phone on at their desk and they could have phone calls. To me, it's got to be as good and invariably the tools and the software will get good enough that um, you can just be at your desk at work and have a call, you know, you hopefully are not more disturbing than if you were on a telephone call, but the person can hear you fairly isolated through AI uh, audio processing. And then likewise, the conference rooms, hopefully they get better, but they also, again, the technology will deal with the problems in those conference rooms better. 
I mean, I think that when you look at what we do here, we have a lot of good audio, a lot of good video, and it's just much easier for us. I mean, I could never withstand a call two hours a day with most people's setups. And so when they say remote didn't work, it's like, well, you know, we didn't know how to do what we were doing. We hired people who didn't know what they were doing and it didn't work. <laughs> you know, like, you know, and we didn't invest enough in it and then it didn't work. You know, like that's usually what happens, you know, is, is you know, the people who are the installers and the people that are com- consulting them, they don't know how to do this, you know, and, and, and so then they, they give them a lot of bad advice and they don't put enough money per person and then they end up with something that doesn't work and then they say, well, that didn't work. But, you know, I, I don't know if I could go back to working in an office and, you know, I, I go into the office to check in on stuff, but I don't know if I could go back to going to an office every day at this point, you know, go to Courtney. Seems to me that this is designed uh, not really for communication with people at home like Zoom. Is It's designed to work in pairs. In other words, there's one at one office and another at another mm-hmm. satellite office. Because if you look at their website, they have common they have a common black background behind the guy. And when you look at, at uh, what he's looking at, the other person is also with a black yeah. background. And this removes distraction. And it also can uh, serve to... Um, uh, isolate and make a secure connection between different uh, different locations of the same company so that they can communicate ideas back and forth without the fear of it going out on the internet. So I think they're looking to sell these as a secure two-way communications between different uh, uh, different outlets of a, of a single company. And, and again, I just think that, you know, these are companies oftentimes that are spending, you know, $1,500 on someone's chair or $2,000 on someone's chair and they're spending you know, $800 on their desk. And then they're like, oh, we can't get a good webcam or we can't get a good camera to, to do the thing. It's just, it, it's not that they don't have the money. It's just they're not prioritizing it, you know, and, and, and it's run by people who, you know, who made those conference rooms that we can't hear anything. You know, I spent for a decade, I spent six hours a day listening to people talk in conference rooms, all in many, many big companies. And you're just sitting there going like this, trying to figure out, like looking down with your hands on your head trying to hear what they're saying because it's echoing so bad from the speakerphone and the hard surfaces, you know? And so, yeah, it doesn't work remotely when you make bad stuff. <laughs> you know, like it, a lot of things don't work well when you're using bad things, you know? And so, um, anyway, uh, next question. Paul Wallace, Austin, Texas, back with, do you agree with this list of serious competitors in the AI chat race? And this is from a Washington Examiner uh, thing about com- uh alternatives to chat GPT, and they, he lists Slack, Amazon, Meta AI, Anthrop- Anthropic, and open source. Good, Jeff. I think even the fact that someone would propose a list today is, is absurd. I mean, everyone, I assume, knows, you know, essentially what happened in that AI, uh, open AI decided now was the time to release their chat GPT. And all of these big companies were caught with their pants down. They've been working on this stuff themselves, but they weren't planning necessarily on a press release or having a workable user product today. Google, of course, is one of the big ones that had been working on this, but then said, uh-oh, well, then we have to have something. So there's Bard and Bard is pretty good. And I, sometimes I compare both and, and Bard is sometimes better at something than uh, ChatGPT and vice versa. But of course, Google is going to be a big player in this. You know, they've been working on analyzing people's words uh, as long as anyone. Microsoft, of course, what they do. I mean, some of the things they do already 
in teams in terms of voice and and composing uh, meeting minutes just purely based on uh, what goes on in a team's meeting, you know, they're going to be big in this. So any list today is irrelevant, frankly. Next question. Peter Moore, Auckland, New Zealand. Sony, Sony is heavily advertising their new models for vloggers, content creators, and so forth here in New Zealand. Any thoughts on the new models? And will Blackmagic Design offer one with a flip-back LCD screen anytime soon if they haven't already? I don't think so. I don't think Blackmagic's going to change their pace. They're, they're going after a different market. The bottom line is Blackmagic doesn't have to build a flip screen they have to build autofocus you know like you know like more than just the the basic autofocus that they have autofocus is the problem i talked to a pretty uh, well-known content creator uh, on youtube and i asked her you know why aren't you using the black magic cameras because they, they the recorded file is better on the black magic camera than the sony's in my opinion and she immediately said autofocus <laughs> Like, like I'm, I'm, I'm shooting this on my own. I need it to be when I, when I point at something, I need to know it's in focus. And I, I've had a lot of trouble, to be honest, with the both the Black Magic, even with the, with the, um, uh, the focus assist. It just gets hard to figure out where exactly what's going on there. And so, the Black Magic is is great when you have an operator, when you have a good screen, when you have it all set up. Uh, it's it's a great solution, and I love my Blackmagic cameras. I've got a couple back there, and I still still shoot a lot with them. Um, I just shot something recently with them, and I'm happy with that. But but I will say that if I was a blogger or a vlogger, uh, the Sony's a better solution. Go ahead, Courtney. Yeah, Blackmagic is concentrated mostly on an entire wired infrastructure with multiple cameras, switchers, et cetera. Mm -hmm. And uh, the vloggers all want something battery-powered, wireless. I mean, uh, you know, just one camera on a stick. Uh, easily portable with long battery life and the ability to frame themselves when the camera is on the stick out in front of them. And, you know, that's just not Blackmagic steel. Yeah, it, it really is the infrastructure. If, if I'm going to do a multicam shoot, I'm still going to use Blackmagics for the most part, uh, unless I can afford to get FR7s or something like that. Um, so so I think that, that is the, um, that's the challenge there. And even then, you know, for some of the larger events that I'm doing now, uh, we've moved, we used to have three operated cameras and we now have four fr7s and one fx6 we have one operator we took the we took the operator budget and put it into more more fr7s <laughs> so that we could have uh because we were ha we want to be adventurous in how wide we go but we, we needed some in-between cameras because we did that and so we kind of moved our budget around to to solve that and they look you know they look really good uh next question Douglas Carmichael's up next. Would the Apple M2 Max Silicon provide any performance improvement for audio applications versus the M2 Pro? Go ahead, Jeff. Any improvement? Yes, I think there'd be some improvement. I think on audio apps, you're probably not going to see a great improvement for the costs that you might see in 4K video and other intensive things. The uh, the only thing that might get you is the max RAM of the computer. If you need, if you have an application like virtual instruments that need a huge, huge, huge amount of RAM, then you can get more in the max in the M2. Go, Jeff. There's a lot of room when you just ask about audio application. You know, if you're just doing pure, unprocessed audio with maybe one source, I mean, I was doing cool audio stuff with my Windows 95 machine. Uh, we've been able to handle that for a long time. 
if you're doing live real-time effects processing, uh, you're doing any kind of noise cancellation, things like crisp AI, what, what it does, and you can run that on your machine. Uh, if you're doing something like, again, Clarity VX Pro that you're using for a live feed and it's doing all kinds of artificial intelligence processing to separate out, again, primary speaker versus what kind of ambient noise you work. I mean, yes, that, and then by the way, you're doing this with, you know, a 16 track feed and multiple audio sources. Uh, of course, you need the processing for something like that. Yeah. Rendering is a big deal. So you, you'll, you'll see a big jump in, I think in, in your rendering output, but I don't see a lot of other changes there. Next question. Zach Jeffers, Jeffers in Spokane, Washington, uh, is the X32 rack with a Dante card the only choice for a compact audio setup, or are there other options in that price range with similar analog I.O. that feeds a Dante out? Go ahead, Jeff. So if you need a rack mixer, uh, take a look at the Yamaha TF series. They have a rack similar to the XR32 rack, you'd need to put a Dante card in it. If you don't need mixing capability and all you need is audio in and out to Dante, um, there's a lot of things like a stage box. Tascam has a new one that's got uh, 16 ins and outs that go to Dante with mic preamps and all of that's controllable via the network. Yeah, and I think that the TF series, if I remember correctly, the reason we don't, we didn't use the TF series for those, is I don't think it has the auto mix in it, the Dugan auto mix. I think that I, if I remember correctly, that that was the one killer. Yeah, you have to step up to the QL series to get yeah. auto mix in was, Yamaha, I think, if I remember correctly. Yeah, and so that was the that was the killer. Like, oh, let's use this, and then we're like, no, let's not use that. <laughs> so that was the only thing that that that, that killed us there. Uh, next question. Todd Rains and Allen, Texas in next Blackmagic sale on the ATEM ISO switchers, and he's got a link to the Blackmagic design website for it. Go ahead, Courtney. Looks like 100 to $200 off on uh, most of their ATEM switching lines, so maybe they're going to come up with something new. Who knows? Yeah, go ahead, uh, Bill. Yeah, I was going to say exactly the same thing. When when products go on sale, it's often right ahead of the release of new models that have additional features. So, <laughs> yeah, so that's good. It's a really good deal for those ISOs, though. So um, I would definitely take a look at those if you're if you were looking for an ISO. There it is. Uh, next question. Douglas Carmichael, in an age where the client's goals are increasing and budgets are decreasing, have you ever worked on a project where everything was as normal as possible or was as it sh or was as it should be and you're not fighting fire after fire? Go ahead, Javier. Well, normal is a very subjective term. Uh, and so what I always try to do when I start a project is like, uh, like get everything together and know what's important for that project. Some projects, the quality is the most important part. Some projects, the delivery time is the most important part. Some projects, the budget is the most important part. So if you and your you take time at the beginning with your client and set exactly what's the scope of the project in, uh, in talking about time, money, everything, uh, you won't be fi fighting fires when you are doing the things you'll, all the fires are gonna be in the past. So. Having a clear understanding for what's normal for that project is the best way to solve that. Good, Courtney. Yeah, if you get into a repetitive type of job where you know, like you're putting a CEO on camera, um, you work with if you work with the same crew, the same equipment, and the same type of setup: portable green screen, set up the talking person, got a teleprompter in front, he's reading his prepared thing. 
uh, that can be as normal and you can do it time after time after time and there's no drama and there's no surprises and there's never a fire to put out. That's the best way. Same people, same same uh, hardware, same setup. Re- repeat, rinse and repeat. Yeah, go ahead, Nigel. The best projects I have been involved in have had an element of moonshot to them, which means we don't know the answer before we start the project. And that is always the most fulfilling thing to do. It also, you know, risks going wrong. And so you have to live with that as well. But if you if you don't want that sense of risk, if you don't want that sense of reward, then there are like plenty of projects to do that are vanilla. <laughs> Go ahead, Bill. I'm seeing more and more clients who are in what I would call the class of just make the pain go away. And here's what I mean by that. They have a script and they want to turn it into some piece of content. And in the past, I might have had all sorts of stakeholders and we'd talk about it and meet and talk about it, meet and revise and finally get it out ready to go out the door. I've had a lot of clients in the last two years who have just said, here's the brief, here's our scratch script. Can you just make this better? And I, I massage the script and I create the content and I send it out and they go, great, bill it. They just don't have the time or the mental bandwidth to go back and forth on things a lot. They just want to solve their problem and move on. And I find those refreshing. Uh, they're very content if they're working with somebody who's done this a lot and has professional chops to just let you make the decisions and get it done. They just want the final thing that works. Yeah, to Bill's point, oftentimes you can, there are clients out there that just want it to work, you know, and they just want, and it's not their budget, it's not their money, <laughs> like, like it's, they're, they're in a division and they just want, they don't, what they don't want is any chance of it going wrong. And so um, oftentimes the, the, one of the, the uh, important sayings is, well, this could affect the stability of the event if we cut cut here <laughs> like you know and that oftentimes you know people are looking at their 401k and going hey how about we just keep that in there <laughs> you know, so you know they'll, they'll fight for a little bit more money to make, make make sure that it's done right especially if once you've built up trust and they know that you're not trying to get more margin you're just trying to make sure that you have what you need to get it done um, a lot of you know when you have that relationship with a client and you're and that means that you're being careful about your margin and you're not trying to you know, gouge them. You're you're doing what needs to be done to get it to get that done, and they know that. Um, there's a lot of things that you can get into where you reasonably just set the set the parameters and say, well, that's what we can do in this budget. We'll pull back a little bit to make sure that we can do what we can what 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 we have in front of us. No, next question. The next one comes from Je- Zach Jeffers in Spokane, Washington. Again, has anybody built a fly pack for use in inclement weather, from blowing sand to possible rain situations? Suggesting uh, suggestions for outside of keeping the rack lid shut. All right, go ahead, Marty. Yeah, that's a tough one. Um, either you've got to put some sort of uh, fabric shield over the rack so that you can duck your head underneath and, and go around the back, uh, something that's going to be secured down to a table for something. Um, another idea is a personal shelter, like you might have seen uh, people would use this on the beach or in a field or something. You can put your table and your rack inside this shelter and it needs to be secured down against wind and stuff. But this will absolutely protect it against rain and, and blowing debris. Yeah, we, there's a lot of 10 by 10 tents that we use that are pretty heavy duty and we'll put them up there. The wind is still a problem with a tent. Uh, most uh, The most common thing that we use when we are in inclement whether it's dust or rain, is RVs. So that you get a double expando RV with a toy hauler on the back, or you know those types of things, and you can drive it up. You have a place to put it. You have stuff on the on the and you put your kit in the back where you would normally put you know our you know 
ATVs or something like that. And, um, and uh, it's a great little setup for you. And you've got a bathroom and everything. <laughs> so so we, uh, we like RVs uh, to do that. And there's some great services that, that are provided there. Uh, next question. Peter Moore, Auckland, New Zealand. Is there somewhere on Discord to post free plugins or limited time offer bundles and so forth? Not currently. Uh, next question. Zach Jeffers in Spokane, Washington. Does anybody have experience using Waves Super Rack Performer for audio processing during a live stream? And he notes the F, uh, the C6 and F6 plugins and so forth. Um, I don't think, I think you might have stumped us on that one. Um, next question. Clive Ludford. Uh, Ludford? Ludford. Uh, Kingston, Jamaica. What do you think is the best budget camcorder with XLR for in-house of worship? Go ahead, Jeff. I don't know what the actual budget is, but I'll probably take a look at the Canon XA series. They have a whole range uh, from 1080 up to uh, 4K with one-inch sensors, and they have uh, good XLR ends that handle mic or line. Next question. Paul Wallace, Austin, Texas. Are you concerned over chatbots writing scripts? One of the leading reasons TV and film screenwriters went on strike. And he has notes a Fortune article titled uh, ChatGPT is terrifying workers yeah jeff real quick yeah one thing i'll, I'll just r remind everyone that i that i always say in this conversation is to keep in mind this is happening it's not a it's not a if it's just what will the pace be in every facet so uh yes people are using that to write scripts and to write content and marketing materials uh, as a voiceover i need to recognize that the voices are all have made huge leaps and bounds they're going to take a, a piece of that work away so everyone needs to prepare i mean be concerned be aware that it's happening and and plan for where you fit into that puzzle as it does more and more things that that people used to do go ahead bill these topics are going to get more and more important one of the things i've been paying attention to lately the wga the writer's guild basic agreement says the writer is a person so if a script is chat gpt or anything else generated only a human's work can be copyrighted under the copyright law. So just, I think there's going to be a lot of confusion there as to whether or not, you know, you create a chat GPT generated idea for a story and you go through all of that, you go to copyright it, maybe you can't. And okay. so all of these sub things are going to be debated. There's a lot of confusion here. Yeah, Courtney. Yeah, maybe used as a cudgel or a bargaining chip in these negotiations that are going on that the producers will say, well, if you just don't uh, agree to our cuts in uh, payment, we're just going to go to chat GPT. Whether that's practical or not, you know, that remains to be seen. It is getting better and better, though. I think a lot of the writing is really not that good, even with human writers. And so, so I think that having the computer do it, I think will be even more, more challenging. Um, so I will say I had ChatGPT do a short film for me. You know, I just asked it to write a short film about two slugs um, and that, that, that fell in love in the, in the style of Michael Bay. And I literally thought that I could actually make that movie and people would watch it on YouTube. I don't know if you did this <laughs> or if you tried really this. Good. But it, I mean, people have asked it to write and it, it lays out the blocking no, no, camera. I, I, uh, yeah, I, I, I had it. I had it like give me a rom com that is in the style of Michael Bay with two slugs falling, you know, falling in love, and it built out a whole and it, and it was the most predictable rom com with some action that you could possibly imagine. 
but it was right on the money. <laughs> like, like it was, and it was, it was relatively funny, you know, like it, and it was as funny as a rom-com is, you know, go ahead, Bill. On the other side of that, did you hear that MASH got Alan uh, Alda and Mike Farrell back together again, and they did a chat GPT MASH script Yeah, and it was a disaster. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So they got the original actors to do the dialogue that chat GPT had, and, and it was really interesting. In fact, I think I had the quote here. Oh, we don't have a time. Oh, yeah. It's fine. It's, the the I will say that the the real danger for everybody is the fact that you know TikTok is pretty popular and they're just copying everything from everybody you know all the time. That's part of the culture. Um, the problem, really, I think, with AI isn't so much that that uh, it's going to replace the people who are doing the film. It's that people are going to be able to entertain themselves to a level that they may not and produce their own content that they may not be interested in anything else. I find that, you know, I've gone to like 80% of what I watch is on YouTube. It's not, it's not on a regular thing. And I mean, and I don't mean YouTube TV, I mean just YouTube videos. And so, um, and I'm, you know, old <laughs> compared to the, the average thing. And so I think that's the real challenge is that this content is, this content's gonna be created, it won't matter. You know, a, a lot of this won't matter because a lot of people are gonna be watching less and less uh, scripted material. Uh, next question. The last one on the queue, I think, Michael, or Clive Ludford from Kingston, Jamaica. My Zoom H6 screen has died. I'm afraid to replace it since Tascam Portacapture X8 seems to be better with 32-bit. Don't want to replace the H6, and in two weeks they come out with the next best thing. What do you guys know about release cycles? Go ahead, Courtney. Don't know much about the release cycles, but the F6 would be a better choice if you want to stay in the Zoom area because it's more of a professional machine. It has 32-bit. Uh, uh, it has auto mix. It has a lot of uh, time code. It has a lot of stuff the handheld series, which is the H series, don't have. Well, that was a busy two hours. <laughs> that was great. Uh, we we I mean obviously we we can't wait to bring Cheryl back. Uh, it was it was good, but we were a little. There was a lot of back and forth. We were trying to figure out fill something in. Uh, do something else, and we just decided to go with the two-hour Q and A. We haven't done that in a long time, and it was uh, it was great, uh, really, really great uh, audio team today on the panel. So thank you all to the panelists who uh, who showed up for today, especially the the audio experts who came in and really uh, gave it gave it some uh, heft. So thank you for your time, and uh, we really appreciate everybody's uh, input uh, on the panel. We thank you for coming. We can't do this without you. Uh, thanks to the producers for all the great questions. You kept us going. We had two hours of questions and boom, <laughs> you managed it. So thank you. Uh, and we had a, even a couple extras that we didn't get to today. So thanks. Great work there. And of course, as always, thanks to the incredible team on the back end, uh, making this happen every single day. Um, it's, it's, it still amazes me <laughs> that we get this done every day. Um, so really great work, great work by the dev team, great work by the organizational teams and great work by the actual production teams that are making this happen. Um, this small village that, uh, runs all week to make sure that we have two hours of content a day. It's quite, it's quite amazing. So thank you for your contribution. Uh, we went 160, 176,000 miles today. That's a big day for us. 176,000 miles. That's uh, 284,000 kilometers in the Tlaloc Traversal. And that is 1.38 billion bananas for scale. Quite, quite impressive. All right, let's go ahead and jump into After Hours. So many bananas. It's like a world supply of potassium getting slippery in here. Yeah, exactly. What do that that many bananas sound like? I don't know. Oh, <laughs> ASMR for you there. Yeah, oh, there's the banana. I'm, I, I actually have to. Rashid has a banana for scale. 
but it's going to change scale if he eats it. I think he has a banana for lunch. Yeah, that's different. <laughs> banana for lunch. Depends what time zone he is. Do the ASMR banana peeling. Scale for bananas. 